Y'all look good. That's uh, one of the ways that I typically start on Wednesday nights is saying, by saying good, good singing. Um, and I think that's very appropriate today, right? Y'all sound good. Um, it's, it's kind of a blessing and a joy to be able to worship the Lord with y'all today um, and, and bring the Word of God to you. Um, this past, this past uh, fall, I think it was, was fall? Yeah. This past fall, I got to teach through the book of Genesis with the youth group. And the book of Genesis is really a story about a family. And if you read, ah, there you go. If you read through the book and you read the story of this family, it's kind of screwed up. It's, it's very messy, uh, very messy. But the family, the book of families is coming to a close. That's what we're going to talk about today. The promise, of Ab- promise that God made to Abraham is coming to fruition, that the, the, the people of Israel are no longer going to be able to call themselves a clan, but they're going to call themselves a nation. And it's all going to come through the story of Joseph. And, and before we get there, why don't I stop and pray for us real quick, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and get to know you more um, and study who you are and your faithfulness and how you never abandon us nor forsake us. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. I pray that we will have ears to hear um, what you would have us say and that um, no words would be spoken today that wouldn't be glorifying and honoring to you. Thank you, Father. Amen. So I grew up in the church, and I grew up uh, going to youth group. My dad was a pastor, and um, uh, when I was in middle school or so, I... I would typically, uh, we would go to do a camp, a summer camp in middle school. Um, a lot of you have been to a summer camp, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and it was super fun. Super fun. So my parents sent me off to this camp. My faithful, adoring parents who loved me dearly sent me to this camp. And I had a blast. There was a blob. We got to rocket people. I was really good at the blob, as you might tell. Um, I got to rocket people off into the water. Uh, we got to swim. We got to play all sorts of games. The, the leaders were great. We got, we, we, you know, we got to worship Jesus. It was a great time. And as many of the youth here know, the, one of the best times is the, the van ride back, right, there and back. Um, so we, got, we had a fun time on the van. We got back. And um, if you've ever been a leader or, or a chaperone on one of these trips, you're exhausted, <laughs> by the end of these trips. And so I was all jazzed up and ready to be home, and I was pretty tired too, and I was looking forward to seeing my, my faithful parents who were always faithful to me and never abandoned me. Um, and I got there, and you know, as, as a bunch of parents were already there picking up my friend, and my parents were, were not there. Um, and so I was like, oh, that's okay. They're, they're probably just running a little late. And so then a little while went on, and more and more of my friends started to go home and leave, and I was still there. <laughs> and so eventually, about the 30-minute mark of when we were supposed to be picked up, uh, I was getting a little anxious, you could say, and, and my leader looked over at me, and he said, hey, Joel, you know, you want to call, you want to go in the office and we can call home. This was before cell phones, of course. And then it hit me oh no, I don't know our phone number because m- my parents had moved houses and we hadn't set up a new, new home phone number. And so I was like, I, I can't call home 
goes, I don't know the number. And then, well, he said, well, you know, you want me to, to drive you home? I can drop you off. And I said, I don't know where home is now. <laughs> um, my parents, you hear jokes and stories of parents, you know, uh, of, of them shipping their kids off to camp and then moving. My parents did that. <laughs> they, my faithful, loving, adoring parents shipped me off to camp and then moved. And so at that point, I was just, how am I, where, I don't know where home is. I don't know, I felt so abandoned. My, faithless, my faithful parents had now become faithless. I was just lost and confused, and I could tell that the leader was getting a little like, okay, I'm tired. <laughs> I want to go home, Joel. And then my brother and his red Nissan Pulsar T-top comes peeking over the hill, and my brother has come to save me and rescue me um, from, from being abandoned by my parents. Of course, it wasn't, it, 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 I, I exaggerate a little bit, they didn't abandon me, and they were, they were loving, caring, patient parents, um, and, and, but my, it was just a miscommunication. But my brother rescued me, and he took me home. Um, this is kind of a silly example, uh, but, but oftentimes you, we kind of feel abandoned, right? We feel like the people that have been faithful to us are, are now become faithless. We feel like we've been betrayed, that no one's on our own side, no one can understand what you're going through. Um, we, we forget the promises that have been made to us. Um, and I would offer you that, that the promises of God are never forgotten. God is constantly and regularly faithful, even when we don't see it. Um, and he is so in three different ways. We're going to look at the story of Joseph to see how the faithfulness of God um, is shown in the story of Joseph. So if you open your Bible, it's flipped over to uh, Genesis 37. Um, I have three, three, three thoughts, three suggestions for you. Um, we see God's faithfulness despite ourselves. We see God's faithfulness despite others. And we see God's faithfulness despite our circumstances. So we're going to start in Genesis 37, where we can see God's faithfulness despite ourselves. Sometimes, we are our own worst enemies, right? Um, it seems like this is the case of, of Joseph a good bit. So let's look at, uh, we'll read Genesis 37, 1 through 11, and, and we'll jump in. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. Y'all awake? I get you? Got you awake now. We're ready to go. All right, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. This is how typically the Genesis stories start. These are the generations of Jacob, the families, the story of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zipporah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Getting amped up here. He said to them, Here is this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, 
We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these things in mind. Jacob, Jake, Joseph is, is not well liked by his brothers. That's, that's apparent from the get-go. And then he's, he comes to his brothers and says, Hey, y'all listen to this. Y'all listen to this. You guys are going to bow down to me. And they're like, Joseph, get, get out of here, man. Come on. And, and then he goes and does it again. No, 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 listen. Listen, I got another one. You guys are going to bow down to me again. What he's saying isn't untrue. But how he says it is kind of devastating, right? This would eventually lead to them wanting to kill him. Um, so sometimes we are, are our own worst enemies. He's kind, kind of a punk. He's kind of, he's kind of an arrogant, young, young guy who's got a lot to prove. Um, some of these things are outside of his control. Like he can't control the fact that his, he is his father's favorite. He doesn't control that. He had, no, he had no thing, nothing to do with getting that blessing. But he has been blessed with that. But how does he treat that blessing? He just, he lords it over his brothers. He puts it on them and says, I'm better than all y'all. Y'all are going to worship me. And it's going to be great. Um, this is a continuing theme throughout the book of Genesis. That God selects people to use um, to bring about his plan and show his faithfulness despite themselves. The whole story of Joseph is not a story about how Joseph is the hero who came in and rescued and redeemed his brothers, but really the story is about how God is faithful to Joseph despite himself. How God doesn't give him over to himself and ruin everything. God's faithfulness does not depend on Joseph. He's, like I said, he's kind of, he's kind of, a, he's, he's not a nice guy. He's lording his position over his brother. He's lording his blessings over his brother. And the Lord still uses him to be faithful, be faithful to Abraham, be faithful to the promise he's made, to create Israel into a nation and move them into, ultimately bring Jesus into the world. I don't know about you, but there, there's just so much hope here for you and I. Um, one in a, in a commentary that Martin Luther wrote on a dispute between Paul and Barnabas, he says this. Here it appears that either Barnabas or Paul went too far. It must have been a violent disagreement to separate the two associates who were so closely united. So Paul and Barnabas got into a fight. These are the words that Martin Luther says. Indeed, the text indicates as much. Such examples are written for our consolation, for it is a great comfort to us to hear that great saints who have the Spirit of God also struggle. Those who, say, who, those who say that saints don't sin deprive us of this comfort. Samson, David, I would offer Joseph, 
many of the other celebrated men full of the Holy Spirit fell into grievous sin. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah were weary of life and desired death. And here it is, listen to this. No one has ever fallen so grievously that he may not rise again. Conversely, no one stands so firmly that he may not fall. If Peter and Paul and Barnabas and, and I would suggest Joseph, they fell, I too may fall. And if they rose again, I too may rise again. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you are not damaged goods that God can't use. God's faithfulness does not depend upon you. God's faithfulness does not depend on what's done to you or what you do. God's faithfulness depends on God. And the promises that he makes, he will keep, no matter what. Secondly, God's faithfulness despite others. Uh, this is incredibly evident throughout the story of Joseph. Over and over and over again, Joseph is hurt by other people. His own brothers plan to kill him and then eventually sell him into slavery. The selling into slavery is the mercy they give him. They were going to kill him, but Reuben said, don't do that. Then Potiphar's wife goes and accuses him of sexual misconduct and then thrown in jail. Um, even today, today, sexual misconduct, he, his reputation is ruined. He, 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 he's, he is a sex offender. He's thrown into jail for something he didn't do unjustly. He didn't do. Um, he sinned against there. The cupbearer that he, he helps and interprets these dreams comes in. Um, Joseph helps him and says, remember me when you get out. Remember me. And then he forgets about him. And sometimes when I was a kid, I was reading over there. I was like, he forgot about him. And I didn't, you skip the part where it says, for two years. This wasn't a week later. This wasn't a month later. This was for two years. The cupbearer forgot about him and left him in prison. Unjustly. So let's look at a couple of these. Look at uh, chapter 39, verse 2 through 5. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. And so Joseph brought, found favor in, the sight of him, in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that, time he, uh, from that time, he made him overseer in his house over all that he had. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. Flip over to uh, verse 39 at the end of it, chapter 21. This is the story of uh, Joseph in prison. Verse 21. And the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So over and over again, the Lord is faithful in these difficult situations. He's blessing him, keeping him. And Joseph doesn't get it. Joseph doesn't see it till the end of the story in, in verse 50 or chapter 50. Where he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, God didn't cause those people to sin against Joseph, but he wasn't afraid to use their sin for his glory. 
As a matter of fact, that's exactly what he does. He takes the sins of other people and uses them to upraise and keep his promises um, to, to bless Abraham's line and make him into a great nation. This, this doesn't mean that Joseph's suffering isn't terrible. This doesn't mean when you suffer, the suffering isn't terrible. It doesn't mean that when really horrible things happen, God tells you to shrug it off and look for the good big picture. Really horrible things are really horrible things. It's not the way it's supposed to be. What it, what, a question that came as I was wrestling through this is what, what perspective should Christ followers have on suffering? What, how, should we, how should we respond to our suffering, especially when it's at the hands of other people? And of course, the perfect example there is Jesus himself. So if you would flip over to Hebrews for me, Hebrews 2 and 4, we're going to look at that together, of how Jesus gave us the model of how to suffer. And of course, the good news is he didn't leave us in that suffering. But look at Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, I'm doing something wrong, I guess. Uh, Look at 10 through 18 in Hebrews 2. Actually, let's skip to 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through who the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, Joseph. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then at the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews, 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We can approach the throne of grace in our time of suffering, in our time of of people sinning against us. We can confidently approach the throne of grace and what we find there is not a deity who is distant and far removed and saying, oh, you suffered, sorry. It's not what we find there. When we approach the throne of grace, we find a, a, a deity who said, your suffering is not the way it's supposed to be, and I'm going to enter into it with you so that I can free you and bring you about a place with no more tears and no more suffering. He doesn't leave you stranded. I would offer you that, that Jesus was in the prison with Joseph. He didn't abandon him. He was there. How much more then can we approach the throne of God in confidence and receive grace and mercy? Thirdly, God's faithfulness despite our circumstances. Like I said earlier, the story of Joseph is not about Joseph. The story of Joseph is about God's faithfulness to keep his promises. That being said, um, he's, he's just an instrument that God uses to bring about his plans to make this family of Abraham a great nation. So what's going on 
and Abraham's family while Joseph is in Egypt? Well, they're starving. Things aren't going great. They're starving. They hear about food. I'm just going to summarize it real quick for you. I'm sure many of you are familiar. They're starving. They hear about food over in Egypt. They say, we can get food. We can survive. They go to Egypt. Um, Joseph, of course, is now second in command in Egypt. He's the one in charge of giving all the food and selling all the food. And, and they go, and he, he kind of he, he tests them. Plays, uh, I don't know if plays a joke, but he tests them. And he says, um, you're spies. So now they, they're being accused of being spies and uh, the only place where they can get food. And then he lets them go as long as they leave a brother with him as, as collateral, so to speak. And so they leave Simon in Egypt as a sign of good faith. And then they get on the road and they get back and they find all their money is back in their bags that they paid for the food. So now they're really scared because they were being accused of being spies. They said, no, 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 we're here to buy food. Here's our money. And then they find all their money back. And so they get home and, and they're, they left, had to leave a brother there. They get home and their dad says, um, my favorite son's dead. Benjamin is my next favorite son. Uh, Joseph said, bring Benjamin if you want, if you want some more food. If you want your other brother back, bring your younger brother. Um, Dad says, nope, Benjamin's my new favorite son. I'm not going to let anything happen to him. You can't go. And so these are men with families who are watching their children starve again, slowly. And they have also lost another brother, they think. And so they're stranded. They're they're in a bad spot. Their situation's not good. They have a dad who's clearly showing favoritism again. Um, they probably lost their brother Simon. Their families are starving. They need more food. They're dying. Their situation is not good. Un, of course, unbeknownst to them, God has already put the means of their salvation in place. The means of their salvation that they despised. Their means of salvation that they tried to kill, that they sold into slavery. God has already put it there. God's at work. Sometimes, God can put us in uncomfortable situations um, just to show that he is in control. Sometimes he puts us in uncomfortable situations just to show how he is faithful, how he won't abandon us. So what do we do? Those situations aren't really outside of his, you know, just domain, but they sure do make us squirm, right? So what do we do? Um... I'm going to refer to C.S. Lewis and the kind of how to handle these situations. In his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, he wrote, uh, from the perspective of an older demon writing to a younger demon on how to lead people astray and get them away from what they call the enemy, which is God. Let me, let me read this quote to you. Screwtape says, There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. Therefore, like, suspense and anxiety barricade your mind against God. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen. Your patient will, the human will, of course, have picked up on the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this, primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which uh, has already actually been dealt with him, out to him. The present anxiety and It is about this, he must say, thy will be done, and for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. 
God promised in Matthew 5 um, to, to provide daily bread. Jesus said, I know your needs. I will take care of you. Are you concerned about the things that will happen? Or are you, are you concerned in putting your focus back on the Lord of what he has promised? So, we've seen God's faithfulness despite ourselves. We've seen God's faithfulness despite others. We've seen God's faithfulness despite our circumstances. All throughout the life of Joseph, what now? Where do we go from, from here? And again, I'm going to refer to C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors, if you haven't picked that up. Um, I got to teach this book, Prince Caspian, uh, this past year. It's one of my favorites as a child. But, but um, in this book, Lucy, a little girl, is confronted with God's will. Aslan's will, God's will. Um, she's, she's talking about, what do you want from me, Aslan? Where do, where do, what do you want me to do? And he responds. So let me read this to you in conclusion. A little story time for conclusion. Do you mean that this is what you want me to do? Gasped Lucy. Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will others see you too? Asked Lucy. Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, said Aslan. Oh dear, oh dear, said Lucy. And I was so pleased at finding you again, and I thought you'd let me stay, and I thought you'd come roaring in and frightening all the enemies away like last time. And now everything is going to be horrid. It is hard for you, little one, said Aslan. But things never happen the same way twice. It has been hard for us all in Narnia before now. Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face. But there must have been some magic in his mane. She could feel lying strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm already, I'm ready now. Now you are a lioness, said Aslan. And now all in Narnia will be renewed. But come, we have no time to lose. Lucy buried her head in Aslan's mane. She clung to her savior. Despite herself, despite others, despite her circumstances, she held tight to her savior and clings to the grace that he offered her. I encourage you to do the same. Cling to your savior. savior. Cling to the, the faithfulness that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are good. Thank you, Lord, that you will never abandon nor forsake us. I pray that, that we will cling to you in all of our times of need, that we will run to your throne of grace in every aspect of our life, Lord. Pray that we will worship and glorify you no matter what we're experiencing, and I thank you for your comfort that you offer. You'll never leave, never forsake us. 